actions antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. Today, I want to talk to you about a topic that uh, we have yet to cover on the first 82 episodes of this particular podcast series, and that is play. Because a lot of times we're talking about personal improvement. How do we get better? How do we achieve the life that we want? But there are other essential human needs. And I've talked a lot about community. I've talked a lot about mental health. And one key component of that actually is play. And so my guest today, AC Holmes, the founder of Boardless, is bringing play to all of our workplaces and all of our lives. AC, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Stephen. Thank you. So AC, what inspired you to make play your pursuit? So during the pandemic, doesn't every story these days start that way? <laughs> uh, Lately, yeah. Yeah. I was a clinical full-time practicing pediatric speech language pathologist and of course, schools and therapy, everything got shut down. And after that happened for a while and then longer and longer, administrators and bureaucrats started talking about, oh, what are we going to do to catch the children up? And they were pitching uh, longer school days and extra summer school and who needs breaks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so everyone in my field and world starts digging up all of the research. No, absolutely. That's the opposite of the answer. Lots of people doing really great work for that and making the point of play is how children learn. Mm -hmm. As I was studying this and, and going through it and reading more and more and more research and realizing that I hadn't really been learning myself for quite a while. And I wasn't that connected and engaged with my own work that I used to love. And I was seeing that story happen with a lot of my friends and colleagues and family and wondered if any of that research about play and the wonders of play, the benefits of learning and growth and development would apply to adults. And it does exponentially. So uh, decided to take the left turn away from kind of the pediatric world because there are definitely people out there already working to bring play to adults, but not enough. So mm. I wanted to add to that pot. Now, who are the people that are already working to bring play to adults? Because I doubt that many people have actually heard of it, given what adults are encouraged to do on a day-to-day -day basis in the modern world. Yeah, absolutely. Consultants, global international consultants, they all kind of have their own niche topic, but it's all based around play. So uh, Mike Montague, Gary Ware, Dr. Mike Rucker just released a book called The Fun Habit, uh, mm. Jeff Harry, Lauren Yee. A lot of folks are working in the realm of uh, helping parents understand play and how they can benefit themselves as well as their children, like Laura Haver and Sharon Calderon. We're kind of all over the place. And then even in Denver, we have, so we are both in the Denver area, but yep. so even in Denver locally to us, Stephen, there are some folks doing even like personal coaching for play. Mm -hmm. So Ashley DePaulis does work with individuals to help them bring more play to their lives. Janet Olmstead is one that focuses on like it's revisiting exercise as play and how that can benefit you. Uh, oh, she's yeah. out of Canada though. She's not in Denver. She's in Canada, but yeah. So, and that's, you know, that list is not comprehensive. So, <laughs> yeah. So there are a lot of people out there talking about adults needing to play as well, but the average adult right now probably is never encouraged to play at all. How do you think we got there? How do you think we got to the point where we have this mindset culturally that when you hit 
15, 18, there's a certain age where you're expected to just no longer want to play and only want to do things that are work or an alternate form of work, such as measuring how many calories you ate and how many calories you burnt, right? (laughs) Yeah. So it actually started way back when we moved from hunter-gatherer communities into farming communities. So hunter-gatherers, the anthropological research tells us they spent up to 50% of their daylit hours in leisure activities. Oh, wow. So if they were, yeah, oh, the whole community across the board. So if they were out hunting bison, I don't know, whatever it is that they, if they're hunting, it gets a little hot or they're just not having that great luck. They would sit down and go fishing instead and not like fishing. Oh, we need this to eat, but like just for fun or sit under some trees with the rest of the hunters and just either rest or play, which fascinated me because I always thought hunter gatherers were probably just running from lions 24 seven. When we switched into that whole farming community, things had to be done at certain times, you know, mm-hmm. time, seasons of the year and times of the day. So now you have tasks that are scheduled. So that yeah. was the beginning of, of the downfall. And obviously I'm not saying that yeah. that move from modern communities, gathered communities is all terrible, but it's where we started to lose play. Because then we went into the industrial revolution, which everyone knows what that did to us. Now we're in this lovely digital revolution where we are just overburdened with information at us all the time, telling us that we should, should, should be doing something else other than play. Yes. And also something else other than what we want to be doing and what our natural gut instinct would tell us is right. And so when we transitioned from hunter-gatherer to agriculture, did we stop playing altogether as adults or was there still a little bit of time? I come from Long Island. I've always lived in cities, so I know I'm very divorced from this world, but <laughs> my ideas come from the the Weird Al Yankovic song, Amish Paradise. And you know, one of the lyrics in that is, at 4.30 in the morning, I'm milking cows. Now, I imagine that between milking cows and whatever afternoon activity interviews on, there's going to be some in-between time where people would have spare time. Did people ever play as adults during that? Or did people instantly transition to like a non-playing lifestyle where it's like once you're 18, you're done? I don't know as much about the farming community society specifically, but now you've opened a rabbit hole for me to dive into uh, very (laughs) soon. So thank you for that. Many of our societies as adults, a lot of us are playing and we don't realize it. Oh, wow. Okay. Fairly often. So I think there was very likely because again, especially back then before with the farming communities before like standardized and structured school, Mm -hmm. the children were still at home learning to be adults through playing, imitating what their parents were doing. Generally, there probably was play at that point. And then probably more so the fall off in that industrial revolution era when it was Mm -hmm. 12, 14 hour days, six and seven days a week was probably the more drastic drop. Yeah. Nowadays, it feels like everything in life is really structured, you know, like even I'm going to get a workout in isn't I'm just going to walk around the forest. It's I'm going to map this hike. I'm going to get out my Strava app and I'm going to measure myself against other people. Is this all kind of a fallout from the industrial revolution or are there other sociological factors that kind of led us to where 
it can feel almost suffocating where every single minute of one's life is a task to be mastered or something that's planned out. I mean, it's a huge sociological phenomenon and problem. It's the shoulds that the hustle culture, the grind culture, if you're not doing, and if you're not showing it, then you're absolutely wasting time. Our society just has really dug deep into that. And I know your work and like a lot of us are really trying to get away from it, but it's hard. It's an uphill battle because it's been so deeply ingrained that it's, it's do and produce and show. And it's hard to even get out of that mindset because, you know, I've had plenty to say about our education system and how it's set up right now, but it ingrains this idea of wait for someone to give you a task, do it to the best of your ability, then wait to be judged on it. Exactly. Which is atrocious. Yeah. And so Uh, 17 years of that, it's hard to, that conditioning, the conditioning in your subconscious really kind of, it's hard to really break. And then for a long time, even the educators with the best intentions and leaders trying to do the right things, we were being told that brain development, especially in our prefrontal cortex, which is where our executive functioning is, where we Mm -hmm. make, you know, critical thinking and problem solving. Clinically, science was telling us that the brain stopped developing. So around the age 25, in your mid-20s, that was it. Good luck. This is the type of adult you are. (laughs) This is the type of leader you are. If it's not great, you know, you're just too bad. It was too late. But now we know that that's not true. And our brains stay neuroplastic across our lifespan. So I think that really also has a lot to do with it. Because clinically and scientifically, when we thought that it stopped, then why bother? Right? Just put your head down and work. It's not up from here. So now that we know that we have the power and physiological capability to change our brain structure, hopefully we can open some new paths. So no matter what age you are, everyone out there listening, even if you're beyond 25, when they say that that prefrontal cortex is fully developed, you can still develop something new in your brain. You can still overcome whatever subconscious conditioning that is there as we all know, and you're still a a work in progress. Yes, absolutely. And the best way to carry out all of that learning and growth and development, especially for children, but I think most people know that, but even as adults and in the same capacity, not less than children, is through play. So when we're playing, the neurochemistry and the neurobiological activity that goes on during playful activities is phenomenal. I mean, it can literally been like, what area do you want to benefit? I will show you how play can do it within your brain. Now you also said that even though we don't value it, no one tells us that we should be doing it, are doing it. Us adults are often playing. What does that look like for in the life of the average person where play enters normal day? Today's a Wednesday. So perfect example of just a typical day. It's a Wednesday in February. Well, Wednesday in February for us, and hopefully everybody does not have to go outside into the eight inches of snow. But generally for adults, it's looking, starting with sports. So maybe pick up basketball. We're not talking elite athletes here. So play comes at a level where competition is not too high when we're talking about the neurological benefits of play. So sports is usually the first one, but then also interpersonal relationships. So you think about the number of things that you're doing with 
your family, your friends, your loved ones, and the type of experiences that you're having and the feelings that you're having during those activities that might be as simple as going to dinner can be very playful. Defining play is very difficult, even for researchers and scientists like at universities studying just play. They cannot come to an agreement on a definition for play. I have 10 characteristics of play. And the most important one is that it's personal. So play is really different for everybody else. So if you think, well, I don't play basketball every week, I'm not playful, then that's absolutely not true because do you love to play Catan and you do it every Friday night? You know, just different things like that. So a lot of times it comes into, yeah, video games, board games, sports, physical activity are the most common adult ones. But then people that do work and have jobs that they really enjoy in a culture that is supportive of them will often end up actually being pretty playful at work. So graphic design is a really easy way to show play at work. Writing, obviously any creative endeavor, but also really, I mean, just project management can be very playful. So hosting this podcast and picking different guests, having different conversations. Am I, am I playing right now? A thousand percent, a thousand percent. So the 10 characteristics of play are that it's personal. So hosting a podcast would not be something that I would choose to do for myself. (laughs) So that's our personal difference there. It's joyful for you. You're smiling. I don't know if there's a video version of this, but you're smiling right now. Uh, And you're bringing joy to other people. It's optional. So you are not being forced to do this. Nope. It's iterative. You're able to change it every week. It's socially interactive because you're talking with someone else. So yes, podcasting for you is definitely a form of play. And I can think of other forms of play. Obviously, we have the experience in our business accelerator program when I asked if freestyle rapping is a form of play. <laughs> yep. <laughs> which is something that I also did did recently at a neighbor's house because my neighbor has jam sessions and yes. I went over and uh, rapped about this really weird bus experience I had last week. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, music. That's another one for adults. Yeah. That they, even though the word play sports and play music are there, adults aren't viewing it as something playful. And it is for sure. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, I love, I love what my neighbor and everyone else does. They're just kind of jamming around what what they feel, right? You know, and they're kind of improvising a bit. It's a very, very playful endeavor. Absolutely. That's awesome. So are there adults out there that aren't getting any of this play, that are in a situation where they don't do any sports, they don't do board games, they don't even have playful conversations. Every one of them is very linear. Yeah. And we see that a lot in the corporate world. But we also see it a lot in lives that have been full of trauma in some level. So this may be a situation where they were deprived of play even as a child. You know, we have the brain circuitry for play at birth. It is still something that's learned. I mean, we have to learn to eat as a child. We have to learn to walk as a child. We have to learn to play. So if we are deprived of that situation, which unfortunately does affect marginalized communities, much as other oppressions do, but... Yeah. So we see these folks who it's like the darker, even darker side of the grind culture. They're only working. And in many situations, they're working and taking care of their family. It's not optional. You know, they have, they have no other option. They feel 
completely locked into it. None of the benefits even it goes back into, you know, playing sports. Sometimes if that seemed just as exercise, like I have to do this because I have to get my exercise in, that completely changes the purpose of that play. So yeah, unfortunately in our society, there are a lot of those folks out there. So it sounds like what you're also alluding to is that there's two modes of this. One is people who are in a hard pressed situation where they don't have any time. And I think of like the single mom who has to work two jobs and also raise her child. That woman probably does not have the time to do anything playful, anything other than right. what's necessary. Like but then it, yeah. yeah. But then there's also the people who have some sort of trauma in their lives where they're conditioned to just not be almost cut off, feel cut off from like that fun aspect. If you start talking about something ridiculous, they'll be like, well, what's the point of this? What's this going to get right. done? You know, yeah. in either of those situations, is there a small step because they're both limiting in their own ways that people can take to get out of it? So I think my best advice for those type of situations is not looking at it as something you have to add to your schedule. So if we think about it less as something that we have to do and more of a way that we want to be, that word playful versus play. So just considering, you know, finding something in your day that's routine, you know, cooking. Single mom has to cook. Yeah, of course. Not an option. There's no door dashing, et cetera. The kids are there. So maybe it again, personal, if that mom really enjoys cooking, that just that perspective of I get to cook. And then maybe even if it's just spaghetti, right? Just changing something up, being a little bit creative with it. And then chores, an easy one sort of is like turn on music and nobody's watching you. So generally, everyone likes to dance if no one's watching. Usually your hesitation for dancing is that someone's watching, which is even me. So that's totally normal. And if you want to get out of that box, look up dork dancing. That's for another conversation. So if you're at home alone and you're vacuuming, like turn up the music and just dance a little bit. And then the other real simple one you could do is just, well, but it's kind of the same. It's just finding a way to make it a little bit new. So because part of what our brain does during playful activities, especially with the dopamine release aspect of it, is that dopamine is actually released in the anticipation of something pleasurable, not like at the moment of the pleasure. So there's a big push for novelty. This is a fairly common recommendation for other purposes, but like try brushing your teeth with your left hand. And then laugh at yourself when it's ridiculous because you can't and you feel like you should be able to. Or like just, you know, doing your day backwards again with time, but maybe consider taking a different way driving to work. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, little things like that. And your brain starts to kind of eat that up. Like, ooh, this is new. This is different. I like. And then as you're building those kind of pathways for that, uh, for the, the dopamine and the serotonin and the endorphins, It's kind of like meditation. So the more you are playful, the more you find yourself being playful without even trying. Yeah. And so can you be conversationally playful as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So the people who feel like they don't have time and can't add another thing, just thinking, uh, actually a really good book about this very exact topic. His Mm -hmm. name is Charlie Hone. He's actually from Denver too. Uh, Charlie Hone. 
It's spelled H-O-E-H-N, but it sounds like zone. Uh, His book, I think is called Playing with Anxiety. I think that's the name of it. But he talks a lot about that he just made the decision to change the way he talked to his wife. He just made it playful. So that's absolutely a huge step to take. Oh, wow. And so what are your thoughts on the song, I'm Never Gonna Not Dance Again by Pink? (laughs) It is on, I have a uh, master silent disco playlist. I help folks put on silent discos if they so want. And that song is on it. (laughs) Oh, and I actually, my last podcast episode was about silent disco. No, oh, what? Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) Oh yeah, because that's the one that's not up yet. Anyway. Oh, it's not up yet. Okay. Yeah, that's the one that's in the the production thing. But yeah, I'll have to facilitate an introduction because one of the things I do offer in this podcast is facilitating introductions, you know, with the relationships I built. But I was just trying to bring a little play into the conversation. Kind of like uh, recently we had a holiday called Groundhog Day, you know, when the U.S. celebrated on February 2nd. And from a scientific standpoint, it's completely bunk. But every year I watch the movie Groundhog Day. And this year, it's been 30 years since that movie actually came out. (gasps) Wow, I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's crazy. I finally realized this really major plot hole that no one thinks about when they watch the movie, which is that he wakes up every morning at 6 a.m. And there's a little shade of light. It's starting to come up. But then I looked up the sunrise time in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania on February 2nd, and it's 728. So in actual reality, it would have been you know, perfectly dark. Is this another example of kind of bringing play into some things? Absolutely. I mean, what does that matter, right? It doesn't really affect the outcome, but it's fun for something, some people to notice. So yeah, when you just thinking about taking aspects and just reducing the pressure of them. So playful activities do that on a neurological basis. We get the dopamine, which releases norepinephrine, which is what helps us control our levels of stress and our regulation of stress. And so taking high pressure things and just maybe thinking about them in a not so serious way, you know, and if this, if it's a truly, truly serious problem, then focus on it, but maybe consider being playful about how you approach the problem. So is the pressure the main thing that would prevent someone from taking a weird approach? Even if it's like, I have this movie and I have a weird alternate theory about it. I think so, especially in, business situations where even if you are a leader, the pressure to perform and produce and prove and succeed is really, really heavy. And a lot of our sort of leftover 80s capitalist business culture that I think are definitely on the way out, which is wonderful. Our HR people are doing a great job of that, but it's still there. And so... Yeah, if if you're not seeing that modeled in your environment, then it would be really hard to do. Like what you're around is what you become. Yep, yep. And what prevents people from releasing this pressure, whether it's been in business, which we also kind of have a clear understanding of sometimes business cultures are very pressured, but Mm -hmm. does that seep into everyday life where if someone's in a very pressured culture in business, they're going to come home and if someone says oh my gosh, what if I take this novel and this self-help book and mash it up into a freestyle rap song and that person's going to be like, no, never going to happen. That's that's a pointless activity. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You think about, and it was me, right? What does burnout look like? Burnout at work 
totally affects our interpersonal relationships everywhere and our life at home. I mean, you don't turn and we're not severance. Have you seen that show? No, but Uh, I've heard about it. I've been afraid to watch it because of my own feelings about things. Oh yeah. So in this show on Apple TV, severance, the workers, they literally, their consciousness is separated work consciousness and at home consciousness, but we don't have that capability. So we walk out of the office or we shut our laptop and all of the feelings and everything that we experienced is still there. You know, so much of our emotions and our experience, we take them in, into our body because our brain is what's producing them. So it's physiological and you can't turn it off. So approaching it at work is, is a great way to start helping our folks be healthier at home. Mm. And do you think some of our work environments that we experience is the primary reason why so many people have gotten to the point where we're too, I don't want to say depressed, but we're in that state of mind where we don't think play is useful, anything playful, those little playful things that we've been talking about. Yeah. I mean, think about how much you're at work. Some people are at work a lot more than they are at home or, or with friends and family. Very few people have something they do for more hours in an average week than they do their jobs. Right. Right. Yeah. I also want to talk about your experience starting boardless. It seems like you left what seemed like a stable job. You haven't told me if, if that, that job was in that stable range and took a risk. What did that experience feel like? Like, what were you feeling when you decided that you were going to take this big risk and give up this stable job? Uh, it was stable. It was, it was very stable. As speech language pathologists, we have the lowest unemployment rate of generally any industry over year over year. The jobs are just always available. So if you're oh, wow. an unemployed speech pathologist, it's probably bad choice. So yes, very stable, pretty well-paying, honestly. Like it wasn't bad. I did not leave because I needed more money, but I did leave because I was burnt out. It was something that I used to love. And there's tons of potential reasons for that. But reflecting on it, I literally played for a living at that mm-hmm. time. So I was on the floor with toys and children's books and bubbles for six hours a day, six to eight hours a day. I was also in the car a lot. So literally playing for a living. And granted, I designed it. But my option for the play, it wasn't for me. It wasn't about me. It wasn't personal play. So. I was not getting the benefits of that I teach on about the play. I just got completely burned out. And so had to go. And it was definitely a huge risk. I decided to do it in July of last year. And July to October are honestly a complete and total blur. (laughs) So (laughs) I started uh, co-starters where I met you, went through that. Startup Accelerator. I joined a second virtual startup accelerator. I was on fire, but it didn't feel like the hustle culture because I wasn't doing it for anybody else. It was, I was interested to see if I could do this. My husband, a little bit of a lunatic, was very supportive of this. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Still not sure why, but I'm grateful (laughs) that he was. And because here we are now. So uh, risky, but it was for me, looking back, it was very playful. So I took an idea. I was iterating it. It was optional. Mm-hmm. It was intrinsically motivating for me. Did you get some pushback from other people in your life that maybe 
don't want you to take that kind of risk. I'm trying to avoid using certain words. That's all right. <laughs> uh, I actually did not. Oh, good. Um, what I what I heard was more of, and honestly, maybe even a little internalized, but the whole fallacy of sunken cost, fallacy of sunk oh, cost. Oh yeah, sunken cost fallacy. Yeah. yeah. So I'm still paying for my degree in speech language pathology. That my son will probably adopt that debt. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but so it was expensive, and I was very good at it. Some of it was guilt that was just internalized. Like, why would I not keep doing this? And so just some friends and family, maybe three. Yeah. We're like, but it's so good what you have now. It was more out of curiosity rather than that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. I think you're an idiot. Good luck. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't get any of that. So that was, it was good. So you had to overcome your own feeling of, Mm. I worked so many years to get to where I am with speech pathology. Yep. And why would I give up this? well-paying stable job over just this burnout about and it seems like the burnout was mostly around like lack of agency like you weren't the one deciding any of these activities and you weren't able to be creative around it now is that something that's common in your field or is that something more specific to your organization because some organizations tend to be a little bit more controlling of these specifics while others tend to be more set the general like direction and let things go So that's what was even a bit more of enigma about it is because I was in full, I was in full control of exactly what we did every day. Every kid could be different if I wanted it to. And the types of things that I was working on all up to me across the whole field of speech pathology, probably not schools and hospitals, quite a bit different, but home health itinerant kind of settings. It usually is that way. But I think it was more just about being at the intersect because I was home health. So it was this weird intersection of education and healthcare for the past five years. So it was even more just the red tape of life. And then, you know, I'm talking to people who are saying that children shouldn't play. They need to be in school at three years old, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And it just, I was weary. So was part of it, this feeling inside of you that you need to focus on the play aspect of it? Did that, did that motivation kind of, throw you to where you needed to go? I went down a lot of paths to try to get out of direct speech therapy. I tried the toy industry. Lego has probably 15 applications from me. Obviously, they never Mm -hmm. called. Um, (laughs) But I tried a lot of things. and But I knew that I wanted to not be doing therapy. But the mission behind speech therapy was always very important to me. So communication and play. So I'd been working for probably about three years just inside my head, trying to come up with ideas about how to still have that as as part of my mission or or whatever kind of work that I was doing. And I just, I hit the sweet spot with this, I think. (laughs) Yeah. So with Boardless, who are the people that you're working with? Are you engaging primarily on a corporate level or other levels individually too. Yep. Um, corporate. Yeah. So I have some, I mentioned Ashley Apollos that does some like one-on-one personal coaching in the realm. That's not a path that I've taken yet. So it's mostly teams, organizations, the types of corporations are generally smaller and mid-sized companies. They might be growing and they are starting to acknowledge that culture is thing that needs to be addressed within their organization 
maybe they're seeing a drop in engagement, maybe they're seeing retention and they, my ideal client knows that and is, sees that something's up and they want to do something about it. But their HR department is either a department of one, which is very common, or a very small department. And they just have to do onboarding and, and benefits, like the basics. And so asking them to add on something to build and create and improve culture is a huge undertaking. So you're looking at these companies and hoping to bring play into the workplace. What's the impact that you're hoping to have on a, <laughs> on a more societal level through these engagements? Yeah. So back to what we were talking about, that if you're miserable at work, it's going to be really, really hard to not be miserable at home. Some people are really, really great about shutting it off. And generally, those are the ones who are the best at self-care. For most of us, even just self-care is really hard. And that's a really common thing. So, But knowing that spending more time at work, even if you sleep well, eat well, hydrate, stretch, meditate, (laughs) all of that stuff, going to work and having Bob the toxic boss breathing down your neck all day, it's not going to matter. You can't... It's just really hard to turn that off. So my work, even though it does focus on office walls, but including Zoom space walls, (laughs) uh, Zoom windows, et cetera, because it can be in-person, hybrid, or remote, that the work will will carry over because as those people are benefiting from play throughout their day at work, it's our brain and you take your brain home. So that brain is still going to have those benefits. So I think it will translate. So can it help the people with the top toxic boss or is this mostly for people who are in a more of a neutral situation where they're not really that inspired, but the play is going to help them have a more positive part of their day? Yeah. Um, I think both. I'm not too delusional (laughs) about my offerings and my studies to think that I can sway even the most toxic Bob, right? Yeah. Sorry, Bobs that are very nice. I fully acknowledge that this won't be for everyone. And I think that they will then learn because the younger generations are, are done with it. They're not putting up with it. So if they walk in the door and they realize that's what's going on, they're leaving. They're out. So I'm going to let that take care of itself. You know, that kind of situation that's happening. But from a a more skeptical standpoint, it can definitely help on that leadership down, Mm -hmm. kind of like a, a top down trickle effect. And when I work with teams on a consultation basis, like longer term, the leadership is required to be involved with the playful type changes because it's, you know, I mean, that's just how company culture works, but then also employees and individual contributors may have their own types of benefits that aren't directly even related to the, the culture itself. Now, when you're looking at these team leaders and especially when you're looking at some of them that are maybe of the older generations, I don't need to be generationally biased, but I know that there are still a lot of people leading companies now that don't really want the work culture changes to happen. And we're very comfortable with the punch in nine to five hierarchy, running up the chain of command, all that garbage. Do you see more people embracing this because they're feeling the changes versus the people who are say more reluctantly, like to put it in a stereotypical way, we can't hold on to those darn millennials. Now we have to do this. (laughs) Right. Right. 
So I have been getting to know people in the HR space. Sometimes people call them people people. So they are the people in the organizations who are in charge of the people. They're making sure they're getting paid. They're making sure they get their time off. They're making sure they have their insurance, but they're also making sure that their desk chair isn't broken and that the person in the cubicle next to them isn't bullying them or harassing them. So they are these people, people. I have been so pleasantly, and I don't know if surprise is the right word because I don't know what my expectations were, but I love them. I love people, people. They are the communities that I'm in, these directors of culture and engagement or VP of people ops are, they care so much about their employees and they want so badly for it to be better. And a lot of them again, like I said before, are so busy and overworked. They're generally a very overworked population that they don't have the kind of the mental bandwidth to come up with creative ideas for for getting people engaged and that kind of thing. And then also they're generally almost fighting with the old school boss, you know, the leadership that is not ready to move down this because why should we have to change? Why can the millennials change? Neither of that, but... I see a lot of really impressive trends and it might just be the spaces that I'm in, but I, I think we are, we're on the right track. I envision that if someone chooses a career in HR, that that's the reason they've done it. They didn't really do it to enforce bureaucratic policy to be (laughs) the person that says like, well, your timesheet had the wrong code or whatever you can think about with that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They they care so much. What do you see for our work culture going forward? I know we're in a period of transition. You know, from a millennial perspective, I see that it doesn't feel like it really works for us in, in the sense just that like back in the 1950s, the total amount of time that a family needed to work was one person working 40 hours. Now we have two people working 100 hours before the same house. And that's what I kind of attribute this kind of reduction in birth rate to, to be 100% honest. So what do you see going forward as, I don't want to say like the old guard moves on or something like that, but as we embrace something new, are there other dangers of, say, moving too far in another direction or other unforeseen unintended consequences, kind of like what we saw with social media, where the unintentional consequences were probably worse than what we had before? What I've been reading and talking with people in this space, that the future of work is flexibility, period, end of story. Um, Mm -hmm. And that goes from a setting, in-office, hybrid, remote, whatever situation. But it also, it's a a job design type of thing. Uh, Development and growth are a huge feature that the younger generation is looking for. They want want mission-driven companies that provide them opportunities to grow and develop. And that might be within their role or give, being given the option to move into another role within the company. Um, so flexibility, I believe, is, is the future. I'm sure that has some kind of dark side, but there's always the argument of being too flexible, being too playful, will let people take advantage. Yeah. I believe that employees that get caught taking advantage, their motive should be analyzed. Because it's very likely coming from an area of fear or mm. a mindset of, um, or a scarcity mindset. 
So, and all of that comes from existing in a toxic culture. It is my belief that people, humans, when handled with care over time, granted, yeah, will, will do the right thing. So when we're providing environments where people can thrive and trust and grow and be in relationship with each other, that that wouldn't need to be a concern. I mean, obviously there's going to be outliers and there are just yeah. some super terrible people, but when you give everybody the flexibility and the things, then that it, the people that are taking advantage on purpose are going to stand out and you can move them onto your competitor. You can figure out. And it sounds like it also requires a reliance on what you brought up earlier, the intrinsic motivation that someone yep. wants to do the job well because they genuinely yes. care about the people they're working with. They genuinely care about the mission of their organization Yes, and how their work shows to other people. Yep. Yeah, exactly. If you're in an office and you know that what you are typing out has a bigger future, amazing purpose, and that you're able to say, I am doing that, then you're not going to cheat the unlimited PTO system and you're not going to not work because you want to help. So yeah, exactly. And it sounds like there's this need to overcome fear, which is what leads to like the excessive amount of bureaucracy, the excessive amount of permissions and paperwork involved in a lot of large organizations. They're afraid they're going to lose money. So we're just going to throw all this stuff at it, which then trickles down. And then you're afraid you're not going to make money or that you're going to get laid off. Yeah. Fear is definitely a barrier to play for sure. Definitely. Well, AC, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes, uh, telling us all about play. Do you have any last piece of advice for my listeners out there as to how anyone can incorporate play right now as you're finishing up this episode? What's the next thing you can do to just feel more playful and creative in your life? If you are pretty mobile and not currently injured or recovering from a surgery, I recommend that the next time you are somewhere in a safe uh, five-foot space to skip across that space instead of walking. Uh, just a simple skipping. And for those that may have some mobility, limited mobility for whatever reason, uh, take 20 seconds, close your eyes, and draw your favorite animal eating your favorite food while your eyes are closed. Oh, wow. I'm going to do that right now, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. And I'd like to thank all my listeners out there for tuning into Actions Antidotes, for engaging some of these stories around people who are pursuing the things that they are truly passionate about. And I'd like to encourage you to pursue what you're passionate about if you know what it is. And if you don't know what it is yet, find the way to give yourself the space to find that out, whether it be through play, through meditation, mindfulness, or through just putting down your phone and giving your brain time to think as opposed to constantly overloading it with information. Yes. Thanks for having me, Stephen. Thank you and have a wonderful rest of your day. <laughs>